Welcome to Northgate's podcast. We pray that you're going to be blessed by hearing God's word. May you be filled with hope as you believe and trust in Jesus. Good morning. <sighs> so we're working our way through Galatians. And uh, I appreciate the day when George Desjardins said to me, you know, Paul talks in circles. And up until that point, I hadn't quite figured it out why it's so hard to find a straight line in the teachings of Paul. Because it's kind of like he covers something and then he goes back to it and then he covers it again and then adds a little more here. And so just to try to get this, where are we going with this? I, uh, I, I want to just go back just a little bit to where Dan finished up last week in Galatians 3. So to start with, I'd like us just to look at Galatians 3. If you want to, I'm going to read out of the NLT. And the uh, the verses 23 to 26 kind of put into context where we're going to go today. So it says, Before, sorry, um, before the way of faith in Christ was available for us, we were placed under the guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So let me put that in another way. <laughs> the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then going on to chapter 4, I want to read just verses 1 to 11. And it's, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set, and that's the way it is before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you no longer are a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to the so-called gods that did not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles, spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work for you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. So that's a lot of wording. Now I'm going to break it down into how Doug would break that down so Doug understands it. And hopefully break it in a way that by the Holy Spirit you can understand it as well. Powerful words. The background of this is that Paul is basically saying that if you are an heir, you're still a child. And 
and uh, if you are still a child, you're actually not much better than a slave would have been in the same time. The heir, although he owns everything the father has given him, is still a minor and therefore not allowed to have it. In fact, the heir uh, is under the leadership of whom the father puts in charge in the home, under the guardian, which could also often be a slave. So the heir is being cared for by a slave who actually has more rights than the heir himself until the heir becomes an adult. So these cultures had a coming-of-age ceremony where the son is recognized as a man after this coming-of-age ceremony. And it's really interesting. I, I just love the wording in this. When the father saw the time was right, he would call this ceremony. I kind of joke just a little bit because I, I do a lot of work with men, and I will include myself in this. There's some of us guys that don't begin to grow up until their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s. So if my father were still alive, I'm not quite sure he, when he would have done the ceremony for me. Now, I'm being a little bit humorous there, but there is this sort of recognition in the culture that after you go through this, in the Jewish culture, it was one way. In this culture, the, uh, they, the father would recognize, it's time, you are now a man, and we're going to have this ceremony. And from the time that takes place, you are legally and fully an heir. So then everything the father has is yours. However, as long as they were still a child, they were just an heir, but not allowed to what they were going to be giving. I find that just fascinating to me. This concept of when the father saw the time was right, it, it just so reminds me of God our Father. That so often we don't think his timing is right. We don't have a clue. I mean, a 13-year-old thinks they're really grown up. And if you are 13, you really are grown up. I was just kidding. You really are grown up. But as we know from those of us that could add 50-some-odd years on top of that, I seriously don't think I grew up until I got married at 25. I didn't even begin to grow up. I was the most self-centered, it's all about me kind of person in the world. And if you had given me a great inheritance then, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. But the inheritance that God gave me, even as I was becoming a man, literally, I didn't know what to do with it. So even my Christian faith was primarily selfish. I did so many things to earn approval. I did so many things to work at, and the just of this passage is freedom from any of our effort to earn approval. It is a glorious freedom. That's what we want to dive into today. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are all made heirs. When that takes place, everything the Father has becomes ours. And so Paul looks at the law right now, and he just looks at it and says, so it had all these limits. We were fully heirs, but before the coming of Christ, there was all these guardianships of the law, and all it could really do was show you how you couldn't do it. So it was a bit frustrating, because no matter how hard you tried, you could never achieve it. 
in chapter 4, verse 3, there was a phrase that came out and I thought, I don't understand what that means. And it's simply that we were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of the world. What does that mean? There is a catch to this guardianship. Although we were God's heirs, yet minors, the law was there, and the catch to it was we were slaves to it. But in what way? And here's where the slavery creeps in. No, here's where the slavery was, and here where it keeps wanting to creep back in. It's the reward of behavior. If you do right, you get good. If you do wrong, you get bad. And that was the slavery of the law. So if you did certain things, you were made as righteous as you could be. You were made as good as you could be. But it was always driven upon me to do it. Never satisfied. Never good enough. There would always have to be another one and another sacrifice and another whatever we needed to do based on the law. We needed to keep doing that. So the guardianship of the law actually becomes our slave. Endless rules and regulations never fully satisfied, becomes the basic principle of the world. And when I actually began to just sit on that and look at it, I would say that almost all of us still live under that principle today. Unless we fully find our freedom in Christ, we live under the principle of reward. Whatever I do, there's a reward that comes with it. Well, when my wife and I were losing our business, I remember the darkest, darkest night I've ever encountered. We sat in the kitchen and we just held it onto each other. And she said, what have we done wrong? And I'm not saying we couldn't have done things differently. But I remember the sense of the Holy Spirit coming over me. And as we just held each other, it was like, we haven't done anything wrong. This is God's timing. This is not something of reward and circumstances. It's a change. It's a shift. But God is still God. And that was probably one of my most freeing times because up until that point, I lived under a system pretty well of reward. I don't know about you, but when you sin, assuming you still do, thank you for somebody laughing, because you all do, What's your rapid go-to response as believers? Mine? I would try to work my way back into God's favor. I would try to do good things. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to get really serious about this. And I'm not making fun of any of that. All of that's good. But if it's motivated by me trying to please God, it's me still trying to live out of a reward system which was the basic slavery of the law. So I wondered, Dan, when we were looking at Galatians, I thought, this is endless. They never seem to get it right, that it's not about slavery, it's about freedom in Christ. And you get to do that chapter. It's for freedom in Christ. We're heading there. But up until this point, it says over and over and over, 
So Paul actually ends this section that we're reading today by saying, I fear that I failed. I fear that all that I have pled with you, you're not getting. And then I could say that today. I could say that about me. Am I really getting what it's like to live in Christ? Or am I allowing myself to live out the basic principles of the world that say if you do good, you will get reward. If you don't do good, you don't get reward. Now, how does that affect us as Christians? I would say that what happens for most of us, and let me just make it me, is that I treated God like I treated my dad, who most of you know died when I was a teenager. But when I treated him that way, when I when I upset my dad, I'd always try to work my way back and earn his freedom, or earn his, earn his approval. God is not like that at all. And it's so hard for us as humans to get our brains around the idea that we do not get what we deserve. If we did, we'd all be going to hell. But the beauty of this is that we don't get what we deserve Because one man, by the name of Jesus Christ, took on himself what I deserve and put it on himself so that you and I, today, 2023, might be able to worship the living God in freedom and in holiness and in truth, knowing that there's not one thing I can do to please him. Because I already am completely pleasing to him in Christ. Now, I'm not saying God isn't pleased by me being nice, doing certain things and all this kind of stuff. I I don't mean that at all. But I mean, as far as my relationship with him goes, when I am adopted by him as his son, fully, legally a son, Jesus is even referred to as my older brother. That seems a little bit weird to me. But that's what the Bible says. That's how much a son I am. That the same spirit of Jesus, he puts in me. Are you kidding me? I remember in one of my efforts, my dad was still alive, and I had a middle brother that was absolutely perfect to my dad, and a sister who was absolutely perfect to my dad. And My middle brother was super athletic, and my dad just wanted a hero that was super athletic. And I was super chunky. <laughs> you know, that goes where your mother has to cut this much off your pants. And it was back when flare pants were in style. And I always had straight pants because the flare got cut off because I was chunky. I couldn't do anything. And I, was, I just, so I decided I, I, I really was being led by God. But at the same time, I thought, this is something I want to earn God's approval because I feel like my life, I'm a complete mess. So I was in turmoil. I was just, ugh, it was, it was an awful place in my life. So I was invited to go out on a, on a team, kind of like Youth of the Mission, but a little, not, not quite like that. And we went down to um, New Jersey and we did religious surveys. It was kind of pattern after some power to change stuff, I think. And we take this religious survey and this is a way, way long time ago. And I remember taking this religious survey and I was so narrow in my thinking that this was still in the day when I knew we were going to heaven 
and then a few other people were going to heaven, but most everybody else wasn't going to heaven because they didn't look and act like us. So there was just a few of us going to heaven. And I knew that if you were too far on the spectrum, like over here and over here, you were definitely not going to heaven. I mean, I knew that, right? So that's why I was going out to evangelize. And also, it was really going to help me feel good about myself. Because if I could see something good coming out of this piece of crap, then that would be great. So I went and I did it. And it was just me. It wasn't my brother. He wasn't there, although he had to go down with me because he was underage and he had to get me there. And goodness, I got lost. And anyway, that's a whole other story. But I'm doing a religious survey. And I got really good at it. It would be... I actually hated it. I hate door-to-door knocking. It's like, oh, I could never be a salesman. But you go up and you say, hi, I'm taking a religious survey in your neighborhood. Would you like to answer a few questions? No, we're going to call the police on you. No, don't do that. We'll move on. So then you go up to somebody else, New Jersey. You ever been to New Jersey? What a weird state. It's wonderful, actually. But that's where I was doing it. Belmar, New Jersey. That was the first place. And and so you go up to another house and you ring the doorbell and hello, hello. Yeah, so I'm taking a religious survey. And, and and you do this and you kind of get the spiel. My favorite place was on the beach where you could play in the sand and get a little bit of tan while you're serving Jesus. And that was all good. But I remember going and there was a woman around back and she was working in her garden. And I asked her the, the questions. And as we worked our way through the questions, we got to this question toward the end, where is if you, if you are standing at the gates of heaven and God says to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? That's always a good one. Gotcha. And then one of the other questions was this one really got me. Would you say that you have peace with God? That you're looking for peace with God? That you don't have peace with God? Well, this woman, I could quickly see, was not in the scope of who I knew were true believers. And I knew that I was. Or so I thought. She was a way, way, way over here. I could see by some of the ornaments in her yard that she was not one of ours. And she looked at me, and she said, oops, there we go. I asked her, do you have peace with God? She said, yes. Do you? I thought, no, 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 I'm doing the survey. You don't know how this works. Nobody asks me if I, if I have peace with God. I'm asking the questions. And that sweet little woman working in her garden pierced my heart because I couldn't answer that I had peace with God. I was driven to try to please God like I was driven to try to please my dad like I was driven to try to please everybody in authority, and I could never please anybody. Romans 3, Paul talks about all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say that when we have faith in Christ and we become this heir, we also die with Christ, in Colossians 3.20, to the basic principles of the world, so that in Christ we die to this enslavement of cause and effect. We die to it. Because of Christ dying for our sins, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we die with him to this enslavement. In verse 4, 
Paul says, just at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. At just the right time is usually a really hard phrase for most of us because often we just think God isn't doing it in the right time, in our own little circumstances. It had been 400 years, and they were waiting for just the right time. So why did it take so long? Was it some game God was playing? I just want to see how dark it gets before I send Jesus? From the best I can gather, because Scripture's not overly clear as to why he did that, I found it fascinating to find out that at just the right time, God sends a son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Just the right time? Remember in the the way an heir becomes a, an adult is when the father determines it's the right time? In just the right time, God sent his son. Why? Because of the way the world had changed. Travel was now available where it had never been. Fascinating, isn't it? So the gospel could go into Asia. It could go into Europe. It could go and spread. Because there was actually travel. There were roads. Even though it was done by conquerors, it provided an avenue for the gospel. It's interesting that the, the Greek language is understood much of it throughout the world because of all this conquering that had taken place and the way language spread. So the gospel is able to be spread because there is a basic understanding of a common language. If you go to Honduras, do you hear any English at the airport or anywhere? None, eh? Most places there's a little bit of English, and it seems to be the most common language spoken. And this would be kind of like that language. You can go to many places in Europe, and many people are bilingual or trilingual, but often English is one of them. And so this was the common language, and so they could understand that. Also, the world was in a decline. It was in a moral abyss, is what one of the commentators said. So at just the right time, God sends his son. So that through faith, we might become free and heirs to God. As I was reading that comment, I just thought, the world becomes a moral abyss. And at just the right time, he comes. I don't know if you have a hope about Jesus Christ returning. But if you don't, it makes days like today get harder and harder. My hope is that this is not it. This is just a short time before the real life begins. And my hope is the fact that Jesus Christ calls us his bride and he says he is coming back for us. And in a moment when we think not, the Son of Man will come. And my hope, my prayer, is that I want to live today in the expectation that Jesus is coming. Now, I used to be afraid of Jesus coming because I was scared and not understanding it. But now there's a longing that says nothing else really does it. I may have said this before, but have you ever been by the bedside of somebody dying? There's nothing they long for if they know Jesus, but Jesus. 
and to be surrounded by people they love. There's nothing they long for. I remember I had this sweet little aunt, and she couldn't say a word. And I could tell by her gestures, she was just almost in a coma, and she, she died the next day. But she wanted her glasses. And so I looked, and I was looking for her glasses, and I wanted to give her her glasses. And I said, who, who do you want to see? Do you want to see my mom? Do you want to see your husband? Do you want to see my cousin? No. Are you looking for Jesus? Yes. I'm looking for him. That's the greatest desire of our souls. And he is coming. He is coming. Never lose that hope. At just the right time, God sent his son. I was also thinking about the fact that he chose to have this son sent, born of a woman. At a time when women were commodities, God chose a woman to bear his physical being life. The woman nurtured that life in the womb. The woman nurtured that child as a baby. What would that do when, when Mary, blessed art thou among women and the fruit of thy womb? What does that do to a woman that's not treated as, as even much better than something I own in a society and now valued by God himself? Magnificent. He was also subject to the law. He had to go through ceremonial things. Jesus had to go through ceremonial things of the law so that now he could adopt us as his very own children. We're all equal in him. Galatians 3 was telling us that. The Roman custom was that an adopted son was given the full rights and place in the family of the son. Wasn't any special category. And they talk about that in the, in the book of Galatians. Because we're his children. Because we're his children. And I kind of jumped ahead here. God places the very spirit of his son within us. I'm a very, very, very practical person. I love that song. Christ lives in me. He places his spirit within us. Where is Christ? I just, I don't want, you don't have to say it out loud, but to yourself, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, where is the spirit of Christ now? And he's in us. Now, if he's in us, and the Spirit of Christ is in me, which he is, there's recognition. And we boast in this relationship. Romans 8 and 11 says, And the Spirit himself bears witness with us that the very same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, so too, with you and me, he will give life to come he will give life to our mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within us. And as a result of this, you and I can cry, Abba Father. 
as a result of the Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of me, I can say, Abba, Father. I did not know God that way. I knew God as a holy God that I couldn't please. I did not know God as a God who would just, I could talk to in the phrase, it literally means a child to his father, daddy. Not to make it lightly, God is holy and pure and righteous. But this intimacy that we have as children of God brings us to a place where we can say, Abba. Jesus, when he was in the garden, he himself as a grown man, affirmed as a man by God himself, says in the garden, he says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. There's a lot that can be said. There's a lot more I could say. I think I just want to divert from my notes here. Maybe just leave them. I went on in chapter 4, and I'd, I'd like to still finish up with that. But the greatest victory, I think, Satan loves to score is to rob you and I of this intimacy with God and the truth that the Spirit of God is inside of me. And his most successful way in robbing us of that is to get us doubting, to get us not believing, to get us going back into works and duties and Things that we think we need to do again. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life cannot be lived if we can't believe that we're loved by God. And if you're like me in any way, I felt so incredibly unlovely. Many days I hated myself. And yet Jesus died for me and calls me his own and died to free me from the lie of despair. Called to free me from all of my efforts. Called to show me the Father who was not like my earthly father. My earthly father was a good man. He was a preacher. He, he loved, he loved Jesus. He loved to pray. I made life horrible for him. And he was an older man and didn't know how to deal with it. I do not totally blame him. I was, I mean, I was, I was just terrible. But through Christ, God can take all of my sin and calls me into this relationship as a son, a full heir of 
everything. Of everything. Can I say it one more time? Of everything. I'm an heir of heaven. Because it's what my Father has for us. I'm an heir of everything God has. Because he has placed his spirit within me. And that spirit within me rises up. And it doesn't say we whisper. It says we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's who we are. I want to close by reading just a little bit of a blurb I found out about John Wesley. If you don't know who John Wesley is, an amazing man of God. But before he became truly free in Christ and, and experienced Jesus, he was a busy man serving God, but not knowing God. And so his biography in a little blip is this. He was the son of a clergyman and a clergyman himself. He was orthodox in his belief and faithful to the scriptures. He was true, faithful in morality, and full of good works, an admirable man. He did ministry in prisons, sweatshops, and slums. He gave food and clothing and education to slum children. He observed both Saturday and Sunday as a Sabbath. How can you beat that? He sailed from England to the American colonies as a missionary. He studied the Bible fasted, and gave regularly. Yet all the time he was bound in the chains of his own religious efforts because he trusted in what he could do to make himself right with God instead of trusting in what Jesus had done. Later, he came to trust in Christ and in Christ only for his salvation and came to see an inner assurance that he was now forgiven, saved a son of God, and looking back on all his religious activity before he was truly saved, he said, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. What transformed him? Being a son. And as we learned about Galatians 3, it's not just a son. We're all sons, daughters, we're all equal. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter what. We're all invited as full heirs. I just want to divert just a little bit. It seems like it's been kind of a heavy, serious, and it is. But I just want to give you a snapshot picture. And I can do this because I'm, I'm officially an older man. Maybe, maybe some kids I'm old. Just wait a little hit. Um, but I love the fact that our kids and their kids think of our home as the homestead, and they are heirs to it. So everything I have there is theirs already. They just can't quite have it yet because I'm still living in the house, and my wife will come back, and she'll live in the house with me. But when they come, yesterday, it was Belle's birthday, so Sprints couldn't come, but the other two kids came, the local ones, with their kids, and then the neighbor's three kids came over, and the other neighbor, his kid, came over. So there's like 10, 11 kids and you know what we did? We dammed up my ditch and they played in the muddy water. My wife, I actually messaged her 
messengered her with her mom and her sister in their nice California living room, all clean and coochie, and, and said, now look at this other part of your family. And they were just not quite aghast, but they couldn't quite fathom clean children lying in a ditch full of mud, playing blissfully fun. And then all those muddy little creatures came in the house. They needed showers not once but twice. They needed their clothes washed. Who knew that if you play in mud, a white shirt will never be white again? But what I love about that picture is as a father, everything I have is yours. You, the little five-year-old, oh, you're not getting everything yet. <laughs> but it, it is all yours. And why is it yours? Because you are mine. We have this relationship. And I just can't help but picture. <laughs> if an earthly father can understand this and delight in it, how much more as we understand the depths and the, the greatness of God to think that you and I are heirs of everything in God. I don't want to get rich. That's not what it's about at all. It's the fact that I no longer have to please you. Those little kids covered in mud giving me a hug, I don't push them away. Giving me a snot-covered candy that's been in their mouth, I eat it. That was the most disgusting. But never refuse a gift. Why? Everything I have is theirs. And if that little snapshot can just give you a picture of how much my father loves you as he loves me, I rest in his love. I rest in his love. I no longer sin and feel far like I have to work my way back. I rather, when I know I've disappointed God, I just say, Lord, I'm coming right back to you now because I love you more than anything else. And you have provided this way for me to come. And I just come. And I just want to be with you. Just as I am without one plea. But that your blood was shed for me. And that you keep welcoming me to yourself. I come. That is the heart of the freedom of the gospel. Jesus how can we possibly thank you enough? We can't get our heads around this truth that you died, that you took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our failures, all of our iniquities upon yourself so that I, so that we could be made right with you, with God, through Jesus. I literally just stand amazed that you could love me. And yet you do. And this is who we are. We are fully heirs, adopted through Christ into God. So this morning, Lord, may we keep our focus on that. May we boast in you. May we think of this 
And we recognize as we take this cup and we take this bread that it was your life given for us, broken, your blood poured out, that makes it possible. And that all you invite us to do is believe and receive by faith your truth. We love you, Jesus. We love you because you first loved us and gave yourself for us. Thank you for joining us for this message this morning. If you'd like more information about Northgate, you can find us on the internet at northgateministry.com. We'd love to hear from you and have a great week.